Hello, you're listening to Liberated Voices with myself, Hussein Abudar Ali Diakidis. And myself, Intia Fatima. Today we are joined by Dr. Saeed Khan. He is an Associate Professor of Near East and Asian Studies, as well as Global Studies at Wayne State University in Detroit, USA. Uh, he is also Associate Director of the Center for Study of Citizenship and also the co-author of What's Going On Here, Islamophobia Under Obama and Trump, which is an IHRC publication. It's also pertinent that he is a founding member and senior research fellow at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, a Michigan-based think tank promoting the study and analysis of US social and domestic policy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. So today we thought it would be nice to have a discussion surrounding uh, the World Cup and its implications on uh, foreign uh, relations and international relations and and maybe speak a little bit about some of the controversies that are happening in places such as France. Um, do you have any opening thoughts? Well, first of all, as, as uh, someone who now lives in America, um, the issue of football... Uh, aka soccer in the U.S. is a um, a difficult narrative. Uh, grew up in the U.K., so uh, football is sort of a first love and a first passion. I've witnessed the uh, this very slow and painful growth of football in America, competing with the other big four sports of basketball, ice hockey, baseball, and American football, and. Of course, the next World Cup is going to be co-hosted by the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, sort of a North American uh, dynamic. And uh, the U.S. did have the World Cup in 1994, which was intended to be a way to jumpstart the love for the world's most popular uh, and pervasive sport in really one of the only countries that still is lagging behind it. Of course, America also doesn't uh, use the metric system. I don't know if there's a causal relationship there. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, what we have, though, is uh, the fascinating fact that uh, football in America really started as an immigrant sport. It was something that people from Latin America, people from Africa, and from Asia uh, really uh, embraced. And uh, before long, uh, it then became embraced by the broader white American population. But having said that, what it also means is that there are several different uh, intersection points of how football is uh, perceived, how it's negotiated, and how it's championed in the U.S. The uh, U.S. team uh, faltered in uh, the the first of the knockout rounds. And uh, in many ways, the U.S. went back to its default position of not caring about football uh, as much as clearly the rest of the world did. As a result of that, in many ways, it's perhaps a bit more insulated to some of these broader conversations that we would like to have on the show today. How does it then refract into areas of politics? How does it refract into areas of culture? How does it refract into uh, football being a metaphor for uh, conflicts and for uh, giving light and visibility to issues of great concern to 
large swaths of people around the earth. Uh, that remains to be seen. What we do find, though, is that now as we're entering this really exciting part of the concluding few matches of the World Cup, is that in many ways the world will never be the same. Uh, the World Cup has uh, brought to fore uh, issues, causes, and in many ways correctives to narratives about groups of people, countries, uh, and processes uh, dealing uh, both within football and without that uh, should be uh, regarded by not only those particular groups and countries as a net positive, uh, but something upon which to build uh, when it comes to that kind of momentum that the World Cup can provide in uh, maintaining these narratives uh, as a force and an agent of good. Hmm. Now, at the at the time of recording this episode, uh, just for the viewers, um, we are just before the match between uh, Morocco and France, which I think a lot of people are, are really looking forward to. Mm. Um, Morocco, Hussein, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the only Muslim country left in the World Cup, and I think yeah. that's why it has so and much. Also, the here. second one ever to make it to the semi-finals. Oh, there you go then. So it's uh, first Arab country. Yeah, so it's it's got a lot of people backing it. It's, I think there's a lot of uh, pressure on the team. There's a lot of pressure on the country and and Moroccans in general. Um, do you think that the the rights in France and we're seeing a lot of racism towards the Moroccans at the moment is that all uh, as as it's being shown on the media or is that somewhat being skewed? Well, there's a lot to unpack here, uh, and so let's just start off with uh, the sheer exaltation that is uh, deserved to be bestowed upon the Moroccan team. Uh, I would say that there are several different narratives when it comes to Morocco. Number one, as you rightly said, uh, it's the first time an African team has qualified for the semifinals, uh, the first time an Arab team mm. has, and I think then by that regard, the first time a Muslim team. No, second, uh, time. second time. Turkey. Uh, Turkey. Uh, but uh, the fact that Morocco has galvanized so many people around the world, and I would argue well beyond the Arab world, well beyond the Muslim world, well beyond the African world, Morocco represents in, in a deliciously ironic way the contrarian, the underdog, mm. and everyone likes an underdog, and more than a few people like the contrarian. And remember, we're at a time right now that uh, in many parts of the world, uh, and you see this reflected in the politics of populism, people want change. They don't want the old stodgy narratives, career politicians and all. And so in, in some ways, we have become acculturated to difference. And Morocco is really at the epitome of that, that they represent something that's not from Latin America, there is a possibility, of course, that Argentina could go on to the final. Mm. Uh, but you have France, which is an old guard European team, an old guard colonizing team, uh, and one that, in fact, won the World Cup in 2018 against the fourth country in this, which is an Eastern European country, which is Croatia. And so what we're finding then is that there's an awful lot of appetite for people who want for example, a Morocco-Croatia 
uh, uh, final because what it means is that the monopoly of the older teams, the traditional and historically successful teams, is going away. People are placing a lot of themselves, their passions, their aspirations into uh, Morocco uh, as being that change agent that they're looking at. But having said that, what we're also witnessing is, unfortunately, the very reason why so many around the world are rooting for Morocco, even though it seems like it's not directly part of their identity politics, they do not like what countries like France represents, which is racism. Uh, they do not like what they have seen in the lead up to the semifinals, where many countries in Europe vilified uh, the host uh, nation Qatar, uh, both through the media and uh, even when it came to their teams. Uh, in, in today's modern parlance, virtue signaling uh, and trying to impose their own social and cultural norms and values on, uh, on Qatar and more broadly than uh, I think vicariously on the Muslim world, uh, playing into those Orientalist tropes uh, playing into those old imperialistic and colonizing tropes. Morocco has really uh, defied all that and provided a counter narrative. And what we're seeing then is in the media coverage in the West, this persistence on trying to uh, either provoke or cast uh, Muslims living within their midst as being troublemakers, as being potentially dangerous and even violent and antisocial. The coverage regarding uh, France is still very questionable about whether the kind of uh, violence and the kind of uh, uh, more toxic celebration, if you will, uh, were even conducted by North Africans. I think it's a big question. Uh, there are reports that there may have been provocations by the security forces who certainly use uh, very draconian and demeaning uh, levels of engagement with the North African community. And then there's also the idea that is it not being reported whether uh, there were provocateurs within the ranks of these, uh, these crowds, most of whom uh, seem to have been very, very peaceful, in fact, bringing family members out to that. And of course, then there's the, uh, the final point that uh, what about when European uh, fans of European uh, sports uh, celebrate by committing violence themselves or uh, or acts of hooliganism? Mm. That just seems to be lad culture. Mm. Uh, boys will be boys, and this is how they are uh, acting. It becomes a matter, again, of agency. If... Europeans riot and uh, commit violence. They seem to be forgiven by their respective countries because, oh, well, it's just, for example, somebody trashing their own home. Mm -hmm. But they continue to see North Africans and these immigrant communities, despite being born and raised over several generations in European countries, as foreigners. So they're not locals. They're not indigenous. They're not... Uh, the people of their own country who are committing these things, they are foreigners who are coming into these countries and damaging it. 
that is one of the key areas of distinction that they're making. And it's it just shows how deeply embedded the racism is in, uh, in Western countries. But do you think, um, obviously the media, I haven't followed it much recently, but at the beginning it was very much attacking Qatar and everything. Yeah. Even um, the opening ceremony of the World Cup, they actually didn't show it. They rather, I think it's the first time in history they haven't shown it on television and they instead chose to just attack Qatar's human rights. Uh, but we're looking in a, a lot of the Arab world and a lot of South America even. Maybe there's a different sort of image that's coming out. Has this actually been a good PR stunt for Qatar? I think that there's two things going on here. First, you're absolutely right. Western countries uh, had a certain level of indignation. And it was as if they had been ginning up for this for quite some time. A part of it is, uh, can be, uh, I think, inferred that Qatar did what they thought was the impossible, the improbable, and the audacious. They landed the bid. We can talk about some of the allegations regarding bribery and all, but that's more of a question for FIFA and its practices. From what it appears, that seems to be more systemic on FIFA's side than it is on Qatar's side. The other issue that, of course, has been brought up, which I think is a very real issue, is about uh, the plight of uh, the labor practices of migrant farmers or migrant workers there. And I think that is a very legitimate concern. But I think here what we need to do is examine it from the standpoint of proportionality. Uh, it has been uh, about 12 years uh, that Qatar, since when you there, has been uh, going ahead and doing a massive level of construction and development of its infrastructure, not only to prepare for the World Cup, but using it as an excuse, as oftentimes happens when countries win the bid for the World Cup or for Olympics, as a justification to then uh, build and uh, have projects for infrastructure development. Qatar has done that. Then, of course, there was the conversation about uh, the number of deaths. Uh, one death is one death too many. But it seems as though when we take a look at the reported numbers over a stretch of time, and again, not just for the World Cup, but for all of the construction projects, it seems as though that is proportionate to what we would find in similar contexts elsewhere in the world. Okay. When it comes to how many people died uh, in these capacities, then there's money. The fact that Qatar spent something along the lines of... Uh, was it uh, $200 billion mm. on not just the World Cup, but on all of this, uh, this development? Well, if you would take a look at that over, say, a 10 to 12-year period, uh, that means that Qatar spent somewhere along the lines of, uh, what is that, maybe $2.2 billion a year. If we take a look at Qatar's uh, GDP for 10 to 12 years, it was closer to $2.3 trillion, wow. which means that Qatar spent 10% of its GDP on building its infrastructure. Uh, I think that most countries would love to be able to, and certainly citizens of most countries, would love if their governments would spend 10% of GDP on infrastructure development 
instead of just on weapon systems or other indulgences. Yeah. So there's the need to cl uh, clear up, cl uh, clarify, and correct the narrative. Now, I am not an advocate for the other governments or any government for that matter. And certainly there are a lot of issues uh, that need to be uh, vetted. And I think that needs to be critiqued when it comes to how Qatar uh, has procured uh, the, uh, the World Cup and uh, how it has gotten to this point. But it would be better to have those conversations when proportionality and uh, a recognition of the hypocrisy of Western countries comes along. No one has ever talked about, for example, the number of Olympics and the number of World Cups that were held by European colonizing uh, countries when they had colonies, mm -hmm. when they had empires. Uh, no one seems to talk about the fact that many uh, countries held World Cups and Olympics at a time when they had uh, criminalized uh, LGBTQ conduct, another issue uh, that has been used as a cudgel against others. So those kinds of data points, I think, are critical to uh, recognize and also to uh, invoke when we hear this kind of blistering and in some cases uh, inappropriate uh, vilification. I think uh, one thing I'd like to bring up on that point is uh, the, the FIFA president, I think he gave a, a speech or a talk or an interview or something. And I remember he said, Europe should be apologizing for the next 2000 years uh, for the atrocities they committed in the last 2000 years. Well, let's let's not even say two thousand. I'll I'll be happy if Europe apologizes for what they did over the last two hundred. Yeah. You know, I'm not looking to go all the way back to uh, <laughs> the first century of the Common Era. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'll be a little bit more charitable about that. But I but but this is a very important point that um, I mean, and here is the other interesting thing for those who in Europe still see this uh, World Cup as some kind of extension uh, of the Crusades of Christians versus the Muslims. Yeah. Uh, mm. and, and you saw examples of this with England fans stupidly wearing um, crusader outfits uh, to try to gain entry into uh, the arenas. Uh, the fact that uh, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Jesus Christ who said, uh, uh, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. So the fact that uh, European countries, Christian or post-Christian as they see themselves, uh, are so sanctimonious in pointing out the issues of Qatar, uh, they could uh, open up a history book into the not too distant <laughs> history of their own. I think that was pointed out with, uh, when Germany did the hand on the mouth to say we're being silenced at uh, a time when Palestinian voices are being completely silenced in Germany. It's almost illegal now to support Palestine in Germany. Um, the, I think that these societies uh, would probably do well with being a bit more reflective and, and self-introspective uh, to see then uh, how they define themselves. And one thing I think is becoming apparently clear as you were asking about the emergence of another narrative elsewhere in the world is it, it people used to say it's the west versus the rest yeah but i think now we can see that it's the rest versus the west mm -hmm. that there is a clear distinction there's also an awful lot of proverbial eye rolling people now are 
hearing what the West is saying, but it's not catching on. I think in the past, people would hear what the West is saying and they would give it some credence. Mm -hmm. I think now it is simply being dismissed and even ignored by the vast majority of the world, mm -hmm. saying that we're, we're pretty much done with your hypocrisy, we're done with the double standards, and we're done with the idea that you can really dictate. And, uh, you know, the IHRC just concluded a conference, it's Islamophobia conference, in which the issue, is the sun setting on the West, was the theme. And... Lo and behold, the World Cup coincides with the, con uh, the conference, and I think that that's a question that we can ask, is that has the West been exposed through its uh, misguided indignation, through its double standards, through its hypocrisy, uh, as being symptomatic of a Western decline? So uh, just to cut in there, uh, that conference can be found on the IHRC website for those viewers that are interested. Uh, it should also be available on YouTube. Um, and I think uh, Dr. Saeed Khan uh, did a wonderful uh, talk on there. So uh, definitely catch up with that. Um, Dr. I guess my, my, my concern with the World Cup is more about, um, like you've mentioned, it's not just football. Um, I think with Morocco, there's been a lot of um, Palestinian support, uh, which I think is great. And I think that's amazing. And it's a really good opportunity to get Palestine out there back into mainstream media. Um, but we've seen a lot of backlash on that. Well, the backlash seems to be um, expected. Uh, mm -hmm. After all, uh, Palestine is uh, an issue that, um, uh, to use electrical terms, is a live wire for many. Mm -hmm. And on both sides of the issue, uh, clearly it inflames the passion of those who advocate for Palestine, and it serves as a, a, a point of uh, tremendous friction uh, for those who are on the other side of the equation. Uh, there's a few things I think that have to be uh, in the name of intellectual honesty, pointed out. FIFA does have certain rules uh, in which it uh, disallows na uh, national, religious, or political sloganeering uh, of any kind. Uh, and this is across the board. Uh, clearly, uh, the Palestine issue would fall within the aegis of, uh, of at least the political uh, I'm not sure, number one, if FIFA is going to enforce that, uh, despite from what reports say, uh, especially I think uh, the government of Israel is uh, advocating for FIFA to uh, impose uh, punishments on uh, Morocco for uh, doing uh, what they have with uh, displaying the, uh, the Palestinian flag, etc. Even if FIFA decides to uh, take action, uh, I'm sure that uh, the fine will be uh, paid uh, either by Morocco itself or uh, by, if they crowdfunded it, it would probably take probably five seconds yeah. for people to do that. Mm -hmm. Such is the centrality of that issue for those who, uh, for whom it, it has such uh, importance and gravity. Uh, at the same time, though, uh, I think it uh, 
it brings out this other geopolitical issue regarding the uh, so-called Abraham Accords, which were signed in 2020 uh, between the State of Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, and later Morocco. Uh, one of the debates that I'm finding to be particularly fascinating right now is about how people perceived the Abraham Accords in different ways. For uh, the Israeli government, they saw this as a leap forward of greater normalization and the perception that Israel was now being legitimized uh, far um, broad, uh, more broadly than it had been before. Uh, before 2020 in the Abraham Accords, uh, Israel had normalized relations with only two Arab countries, uh, Egypt in the 1970s and Jordan in the 1990s. And now there are three countries, one of which is playing for in the semifinals uh, as we speak uh, for the, uh, the World Cup. And there seems to have been this expectation that with that normalization, that meant that there was a normalization not only of diplomatic relations, but of social perceptions mm -hmm. toward Israel. And that was uh, perhaps uh, a very, either a very naive uh, expectation uh, or uh, had completely missed the plot of understanding the distinction between uh, making uh, high-level agreements and the chasm between the elite and the ruling class and the so-called street. Uh, civil society in these countries uh, have a rather different expectation and also outlook when it comes to the Palestinian issue. Now, part of that could simply be about priorities. Uh, governments have to consider broader geopolitical consequences. They have to consider economics. Uh, for the civil society, they are not directly uh, connected to that particular narrative. For them, it is about their agency being manifested through what they see as solidarity issues and solidarity movements. So I'm not sure for anyone who's actually been keeping track uh, that uh, civil society in countries like Morocco uh, are not uh, seeing themselves as in accordance with what was an expectation or a wish regarding the uh, the Abraham Accords. Yeah. But do you think the Moroccan government or the Moroccan king is embarrassed about what he's seen? It's like his people are, are against his decisions. That's an interesting question because I can't imagine that the Moroccan king is so obtuse as to not know that. And quite frankly, I would suspect that even the Israeli government is not so... Um, dim as to not realize that they're working on a level that doesn't necessarily reflect the rest of the people. Was there an expectation that working with despots and monarchies will then keep in check uh, the, uh, the distinction between what was expected and what is the reality? Uh, perhaps, but what the World Cup has shown us in a rather ironic way is that certain expressions of speech uh, certainly are welcomed and uh, permitted in, in, in an Arab Gulf country. 
Uh, it doesn't seem as though Qatar has expressed any interest uh, or desire to suppress the uh, the expression of Palestinian solidarity by either mm -hmm. the Morocco team or others. And um, I find it also interesting that, to the best of my knowledge, the Israeli government has not made that demand, uh, either directly or indirectly, since they don't have diplomatic relations with Qatar to do anything about it. It seems as though it has been allowed to uh, go on. That seems quite strange to me. I, I'm not sure why. I just feel like the Israeli government would would sort of lash back in a way. No? Probably want to keep it as quiet as possible. Oh, they, they may be working through back channels on that, but there's always this danger of uh, overstepping. Right. And it it is a very, very, uh, it's a very precarious tightrope for a country like Israel that uh, certainly wants to maintain its uh, broader international persona of being a uh, liberal democracy, of the only democracy in the Middle East, of course, uh, paramount in that is notions of, of freedom of speech. So it would seem to be then problematic if Israel was now seen as uh, making efforts to uh, demand of other sovereign states uh, a limitation on uh, on free speech. Do you yeah. think there's uh, also an aspect of uh, earlier this year we saw um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We saw um, a lot of comparison being made on social media, particularly, but by young people across Britain. And I don't know if it was the same in the United States of how the it was being treated Russia's invasion of Ukraine in comparison to how the, the attacks on Palestine are being. Um, showing the hypocrisy. We've seen now Russia was actually ended up being banned from the World Cup. They've been, um, I, I don't know if they'd qualified, but they, they certainly weren't allowed to play. Um, do you think this could have played a part as well in Israel saying, well, we don't want to keep showing the hypocrisy of this human rights issue compared to ours if we start complaining? I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's a little bit murky to make the comparisons within the Ukraine discourse, because um, while for some they might see this as hypocrisy and double standards, there are so many variables in uh, looking at the issue, for example, of refugees, mm -hmm. uh, looking at the issue of uh, what kind of pushback what kind of condemnation is occurring in the case of Russia? Yes, in the case of Israel, no, for those people who are upset about the treatment of the Palestinians compared to what they see as the treatment of the Ukrainians. So that brings this mosaic of mm. complexities uh, into specific relief. Uh, what I do think, though, is that it is the, compli the complex relationship that especially nation states have with one another that make the discourse and the debate about this, uh, certainly from the standpoint of an academic, fascinating, but one that we should be asking the right questions and we should be engaged in it. For example, the fact that on the one hand, Germany seemed to be so upset with Qatar uh, ostensibly over the treatment of LGBTQ, uh, although nobody in Qatar 
is uh, prosecuted simply for being gay. Mm. Uh, it's all about an expression. And I would argue, having been to Qatar numerous times, that uh, they're not necessarily fond of people who are straight having a public display of their affection. So uh, that's that's a cultural thing that that is going to have to be respected by by other countries. But what was missing in that equation, despite the fact that one of uh, Germany's ministers very defiantly wore a rainbow uh, a band uh, at one of the matches, is the fact that Germany is uh, a major importer of uh, Qatar's natural gas at a time when Russia has turned off the spigot. So to me, it seems as though it's about ingratitude. Mm. Here you are ungrateful for the fact that Qatar is literally keeping you warm in an in impending winter that's going to be very bad. Mm. And second of all, the ingratitude of uh, being uh, poorly as guests in another country. Here you've got Qatar that is helping you out, mm. not realizing that if it was about this virtue signal, like Qatar could say, we'll just sell our gas to somebody else. Yeah. And you can then have fun uh, trying to stay toasty uh, <laughs> over, over uh, a few months coming up here. Uh, there needs to be the recognition that uh, there's an awful lot of character and integrity that countries can withstand these kinds of rhetorical slings and arrows uh, that that come to them, as opposed to other more petulant countries, as we saw with the United States under the Trump administration. Anybody who says something uh, untoward about him, he was willing to punish, like Ukraine and other countries. So um, it's 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 occasions like the World Cup that hold a mirror up to people so that they can see their reflection. And um, whether they like what they see uh, is up to them, uh, but they're not the only people who are privy to seeing what the image is of the mirror. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Saeed. Um, I think Hussein and all the viewers will agree that that was Definitely. a very uh, intriguing conversation to have. Unfortunately, we have come to the end of our episode today. Um, Dr. Saeed, where can the viewers find you and some of your work? Um, they can always find me at s.khan at wayne.edu or they can look up Saeed Khan, Wayne State University on a few different social media platforms. I'm sorry, I can't remember what my my uh, my handles are on these things. Mm. Um, but uh, I'm not that hard to find. You can also purchase his book, What's Going On Here? Islamophobia under Obama and Trump at the IHRC Bookshop. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. This is wonderful. I'd love to be back on. Excellent, excellent. Uh, thank you very much to all our viewers as well. We'll see you next time. Take care. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.